Welcome to CCAP Across the Maps podcast, What the Health, where we cover a variety of health topics in the form of personal stories and educational episodes. I'm Michael McPhee, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, by popular demand, we will be bringing back the co-founders of CCAP Across the Map, Jillian Lieber and Hunter Ackerley, who will talk to us about the different types of cervical cancer screening methods. Well, welcome back. We're excited to have you. In previous episodes, we've discussed cervical cancer, what it is, and some ways to prevent it. But today we want to focus on one of the best prevention methods, which is consistent diagnostic screenings. So just to start off, what are the main types of cervical cancer screenings? Well, hello, Michael. Thank you so much for having us back on the podcast. I think I speak for both Hunter and myself when I say that we're happy to be here. Uh, So to answer your question, many areas, primarily in the Western world, primarily use two types of tests, the pap smear test and the HPV test. Uh, Both of these tests can help prevent cervical cancer and or find it in its early stages so it's more treatable, but they actually differ in the way that they work. Uh, First, the pap smear test looks specifically for precancers, which are changes in cervical cells that could develop into cervical cancer if they're left untreated. With this test, a provider uses either a plastic or metal speculum to help visualize the cervix, at which point the provider examines both the vagina and the cervix, and then collects a few cells and some mucus from the cervix and its surrounding area. After the sample collection is done, the cells are sent to a lab for the test. And next, the HPV test looks for the number one cause of cervical cancer, the human papillomavirus, HPV. So this test accordingly tests the collected cells for HPV. It should be noted that both of these tests can be done by a provider in a clinic setting. Okay, that's very interesting. When do people need to get screened for cervical cancer? Well, Michael, the CDC recommends that screening starts at the age of 21, and it can usually stop around the age of 65, just depending on your history with screening and cervical cancer and conversations with your provider. But for a more detailed breakdown, the CDC specifically recommends that people ages 21 through 29 get a pap smear every three years if the results that come back are normal. And then they recommend that people ages 30 through 65, well, they actually have three options. So these people can continue to get a pap smear test every three years, as long as the results continue to be normal. Or they can get the HPV test, which is called primary testing, every five years, again, if the results are normal. Or they can actually get both the pap smear test and the HPV test. And we're going to go ahead and call that co-testing because we're doing the tests together. So that can happen every five years if the results are normal. Many people over the age of 65 no longer need to actually be screened if they've had normal results for several years or if they've had their cervix removed as part of a total hysterectomy for non-cancerous conditions, for example, like fibroids. So after the tests have been completed, you've gone through the process. How do you get your results? Depending on your geographic location, it could take up to three weeks to get your results in many places. If the results are normal, then the chance of getting cervical cancer in the next few years is considered low, so you'll likely continue to get a test between every three to five years, though potentially more frequently depending on your age, the tests that you do, and your medical history, which should all be determined with your provider. If the results are potentially abnormal, then your provider will contact you to make the best plan for follow-up. 
It is important to note that there are many possible reasons that someone could have abnormal results, and it usually does not necessarily mean that person has cancer. However, if the results are abnormal and show that the cells may become cancerous, then you and your provider will work together on a treatment plan. In many cases, luckily treatment at this stage actually prevents cervical cancer from developing, which is why it is so important to get regular screenings, whether your results are normal or not. That's really good to know for prevention and just next steps. You mentioned both the pap smear test and the HPV tests, but I'm curious, how do these two different types of tests compare? So for people age 30 or older, both primary HPV testing and co-testing are more sensitive actually than the pap smear test alone. So this is why the interval of waiting five years for primary testing and co-testing compared to waiting three years for just the pap smear testing actually exists. And additionally, both primary testing and co-testing could help improve detection of a specific type of abnormality called glandular cell abnormalities. And this includes adenocarcinoma of the cervix. So glandular cell abnormalities and adenocarcinoma of the cervix are both less common than squamous cell abnormalities and squamous cell carcinoma. But it's been observed that they are becoming more common over time. Now you mentioned the two primary ways of testing for cervical cancer, the pap smear test and the HPV test, but are there any other methods? Yes. So while the pap smear is um, in particular been the standard of care in the Western world for decades, in low resource countries, a method called visual inspection using acetic acid, otherwise known as VIA, is commonly used. And VIA can be very advantageous because it is both a relatively simple and inexpensive test. And it can be done by healthcare workers with just a short training. How does VIA work exactly? Just as Hunter mentioned, VIA is a rather simple test that can essentially be summarized in three main steps. The first step is performing the test. This entails a vaginal speculum exam being done, at which point the healthcare provider applies household vinegar, which contains three to 5% acetic acid, and they apply this to the cervix using a sterile swab. The second step is viewing the cervix with the naked eye to identify color changes of the cervix as abnormal tissue temporarily appears white when it's exposed to the vinegar. Uh, the term used to describe this tissue is acetal-white. The last step is determining whether the test is positive or negative for possible precancerous lesions or cancer itself. Okay, so you mentioned some of, some of the process, but how are the results interpreted here? Uh, there are three main categories, test negative, test positive, and suspicious for cancer. Uh, first, the test negative involves no acetal-white lesions, whereas the test positive involves sharp, distinct, very well-defined and dense acetal-white areas. And then that third type of result, uh, the middle ground suspicious for cancer, uh, that entails clinically visible, very ulcerative, almost cauliflower-like growth, oozing and or bleeding on touch during the examination. Uh, people who test positive are either referred for further confirmatory testing or they're offered treatment right away, just depending on the model that's used in the specific area. Right, of course. Now, I wanted to ask about that because you talked about how, how different areas might use different screening methods. For people that live in an area where VIA is the primary method, when do they need to get the VIA test? 
So that's an actually really interesting question. The World Health Organization conducted a study, and from that study, they put out some recommendations. And for people in low and middle income countries, they recommend that screening begin at age 30. And they want to give priority to maximizing screening coverage of people between the ages of 30 to 49 in those low and middle income countries. And additionally, um, they also recommend that you wait between three to five years following a negative VIA test result. And that's actually pretty similar to the pap smear and HPV test. I have to ask, when you mentioned things like household items like vinegar being used for this test, obviously there's been a lot of studies done on its efficacy, but is this test accurate? (laughs) That's a really good question. I know it's kind of wild to think that something like household vinegar could be so great at diagnosing cervical cancer, but VIA is regarded as an accurate test. And it's been found to have a mean of 81% sensitivity. And that means that when samples test positive, they're correctly being tested as positive. And if you compare that to the pap smear, its sensitivity is 55.4%. And if you compare that to HPV testing, that sensitivity is 94.6. And additionally, VIA has an 83% specificity, and that means that samples that test negative are correctly tested as negative. Again, compared to the pap smear test, which has a 96.8% specificity, and again, the HPV test, which has a 94.1% specificity, you can see that all these tests are accurate, and wherever they're used around the world, they're going to be great at helping to diagnose cervical cancer. Absolutely. Those are all very important tools in screening and prevention. So, What are some of the strengths and weaknesses of VIA? That's a great question. So starting with the strengths, VIA is a relatively simple, easy to learn approach that relies very minimally upon healthcare infrastructure. And it's very accessible through training to many healthcare providers. It additionally has low startup and sustaining costs. And the test results are available immediately. So one visit may be all that is required. On the flip side of that, going over to the weaknesses, the moderate specificity at times actually causes resources being spent on unnecessary treatment on people who are free of precancerous lesions, uh, specifically in a single visit approach where diagnosis and treatment are done in the same day. Additionally, there is presently a need for developing standard training methods and quality assurance measures. Uh, The test is also less likely to be accurate among people who are post-menopause And it is rather rater dependent, uh, which just means that the testing results are very contingent on how the specific reader interprets them. We've talked about these different methods. There's obviously pros and cons to each one. Are there any other types of cervical cancer screenings that are important to know about? Absolutely, yeah. Our team at CCAP Across the Map has actually been doing some internal research on the efficacy of HPV self-sampling. And so the AMA Journal of Ethics goes on to explain that HPV self-sampling is um, an innovative technique for cervical cancer screening that actually will empower people with cervixes because it allows them to collect their own specimen in private at a time and place of their choosing and when and where they're feeling comfortable. And that has the power to overcome so many of the identified barriers to accessing other testing methods. So specifically, self-sampling removes the need for a pelvic exam, it removes the need for a clinical setting, and also a trained clinician, because these people can literally do this test where they feel comfortable. Maybe that's their own home, but it's really helpful. Wow. I mean, that seems like it opens so many doors to accessibility and everything, comfort, privacy. That's that's incredible. Um, 
just a basic question here, but how does self-sampling work? So just to respond to your comment, yeah, this self-sampling can be so revolutionary. I mean, just think about how people who have diabetes, they can manage their glucose at home. They can test their glucose and their blood sugar levels. Think about over-the-counter pregnancy tests. Think about COVID-19 at-home tests. It really just increases accessibility and encourages people to screen. So self-sampling for HPV uh, works in a very similar way. So essentially the user is given a kit that contains the necessary tools for self-collection and then performs the collection in a private place where they feel comfortable, which might be the comfort of their own home, just like Hunter just mentioned. The kits come with instructions and these instructions normally have pictures and they're typically very simple and don't require any specific training on the part of the user. Uh, once the specimen has been collected, it's then put into a tube and a sealed envelope, which is either mailed to the lab or it's handed to a healthcare worker if there is one present who will then take it to the lab themselves. All in all, the test takes between two to three minutes total. How are the results reported? You send it into the lab, what, what happens next? So the results are typically processed by a lab technician in literally just a few hours. And the results are then reported to people by mail or through the community healthcare worker the user is working with. And these results will come often with an interpretation of either positive or negative results and then additionally next steps that are advised for the person who completed the test, just like with the pap smear test, the HPV test, and VIA. We mentioned like with VIA, how, how there are often pros and cons to any method. What are some of the pros and cons to self-sampling for HPV? Well, the pros are that this method is very private since it does not entail a pelvic examination, which could encourage screening, especially in low and middle income countries where lack of privacy leading to fear and shame is one of the most commonly cited reasons for not getting tested for cervical cancer. HPV self-sampling is also very cost-effective, which is especially important to note for those who are underinsured. However, though this method has its many pros, it also does have its cons, just like the other methods that we've discussed today. Uh, the potential cons are mainly that the introduction of self-sampling does have the potential to change the makeup and the workflow of clinicians and lab specialists in already resource-constrained settings, which could be very difficult to integrate this new process. So again, if, if you're talking about self-sampling, you know, you're, you're putting it in the hands of someone who's uh, not a trained provider, just someone in their own home. Is self-sampling for HPV an accurate method? It's actually really exciting because yes, HPV testing has been found to be as accurate with those self-collected specimens as with clinician-collected specimens, just as long as follow-ups are appropriately managed through a healthcare provider. And in addition to the pros that Jillian just listed, there was a 2017 literature review on HPV self-sampling that revealed there is a strong body of evidence to support the usefulness of HPV self-sampling and increasing participation of hard-to-reach people in screening programs. Convenience, privacy, ease of use, and also likely cost-effectiveness of HPV self-sampling are driving forces in its emerging role in cervical cancer screening among hard-to-reach people. So we're seeing people in rural areas or people who might be facing that fear and shame have more access to things that they otherwise really wouldn't. Yeah, this is 
I feel like something we need to talk more and more about. I mean, we could talk for hours. This feels like an absolute game changer. <laughs> um, it's it's hard not to be, you know, just gush over that. But any uh, any other comments about HPV testing? I know we've talked about several di- different methods today, but is there anything else that you want people to know? Yeah. So just as you just said, we could gush about HPV self-testing and all of its potential for hours, but it is important to note that HPV testing, uh, whether the sample is collected by the user or by a clinician, it could affect how people interpret the screening results in ways that cause harm. And this is largely because HPV is primarily transmitted through sexual contact. Uh, for example, people who have negative results may consider themselves as being less vulnerable to the virus, and this false belief could lead to engagement in risky sexual behaviors, which causes them to contract the virus. On the flip side of that, some people who have positive results may fear that a positive test would bring shame, blame, and even abandonment by their families, particularly by their husbands in some cultures. Uh, This fear is especially exacerbated in societies with a very dominant patriarchy, uh, where stigma could cause their male partner to suspect they have other male partners. Uh, That's why no matter what the type of screening is, developing culturally appropriate educational materials is vital for the prevention of cervical cancer. Uh, We always try to act in accordance with this here at CCAP across the map, and we are always open to any and all feedback about our educational materials. Well, thank you for giving us so much great information about these important tools. I agree, education, preventative screenings, these, this, is, this is how we eradicate cervical cancer. To close out the episode, I just wanted to thank Jillian and Hunter for, for being with us today and for giving us such great information. For, for our listeners, make sure you stay tuned for our next episode and give us a follow on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also learn more about CCAP Across the Map by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok at CCAP Across the Map. You can additionally stay up to date with us on our YouTube channel and through our website, ccapglobal.org. Thanks for listening to What the Help, and we'll catch you next time.